Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Verkula, and this episode of the podcast is for the last week of September 2020 and the first few days of October. We begin in medias race, as Paul Jacob and I discuss Tuesday night's presidential debate. I recorded this on Wednesday. This is basically me trying to nudge Paul to write about the debate. I watched the whole thing. Did you? It was a terrible debate. It was a terrible format. They created a format. The two minutes were kind of good, but you can't just leave them unstructured after that. And then it was never quite clear. You know, it just everything was all over. And, and uh, you know, they Trump kind of looked like his mind works and uh and he's not an automaton and that's good and everything that puts him way ahead of joe biden but what but, about biden uh, he, I, everybody says he came out looking pretty good no not really not really i mean he did not stumble he didn't have a single i've lost my place and so on and so on which of course i can do too so uh but he's not strong he's i i just can't imagine and I don't know, I guess people have their own judgments, but I can't imagine that we would send, like if you sent Trump into a meeting with Xi Jinping, you'd have to worry that Trump might say some bullshit that maybe he shouldn't say. You wouldn't have to worry that Xi Jinping would like go, whoa, well, would you sign this? And, uh, hey, just drink this, would you mind? <laughs> you know, and, and with Biden, you kind of, I think, have to. But, but you know, maybe I'm jaundiced or something. But I don't have any interest in covering it, really, because all the important things are not about this, the debate, if you if you know what I mean. It's like, I don't know what I really want to... I mean, we could always comment about debate, but well, it's, uh, it seems armchairy. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. My biggest uh, interest in this really is the format of debates, because I've been thinking about this for many years, and I just hate the format of these debates. And if you say it's really bad this time. Um, well, it was two minutes at the beginning, two minutes for you and then two minutes for you, you know, that type of thing. And then it seemed like it was like another 10 minutes of just free flow back and forth. And it it just created a, a situation in which the moderator had very little control, which you can always tell when the moderator doesn't have much control because the moderator has talks all the time. The moderator's talking all the time because, and both of them would start to answer his question before he asked his question. And you kind of think, you know, the first time it happens, the second, the third, the fourth, they're both doing it. You kind of think, geez, what's wrong with you guys? Can you just calm down a little bit? But one, it's hard to calm down in those situations. And two, at a certain point, it's the it's the problem of the person who's asking the questions. Why is there a 62-part, can't you, I mean, so often it's because I want to make you respond to this, but it's not really a, you know, the, the key point. It's a tangent little dig, you know, media story. And it, it's all kinds of reasons, none of which are usually good for why, they can't get a solid question. What are you going to do? to? So, and they also would ask stupid they. It was he. And he's better than that. I'm not a huge fan of him or anything, but he's better than this. It is worth something in terms of debates. They don't, like, they've had this rule for a long time that if you're attacked, 
you get to respond. So if two people just attack each other all the time, they get to dominate the debate. And that's stupid. And here, the moderator needs to be able to come back. He can't give them 10 minutes to go back and forth with each other. I mean, if you're going to do that, then say, here's an hour and a half. Give them both a mic. Give them both a podium and say, go. They can talk to the audience that's out there that they know that's out there. or They can talk to each other. They can mumble to themselves and get in a fetal position, whatever they want to do. That that would be better than than what we had in, in in that debate, I think. I have two different ways I'd like to do debates. I've never participated in a debate or a public discussion that I've liked very much. One of them I call the talking stick method, is that each person has an allotted amount of time. You're going to do this within an hour and you have 30 minutes. And if you shoot your wad in the first 30 minutes, then the other guy gets the next 30 minutes straight. There's no interruptions. You have to give it to the other person. Is that you actually have to give it up and you don't have, you can't buy it back later on. One of the mistakes Trump made, I thought one time Biden was stumbling and Trump went back at him again on the same thing, basically reiterating, that's the mode you're in. You, you got to be attacking. But it was like, I was sitting there going, don't do that. Oh, you, you, you know, never interrupt your opponent when they're making a mistake. Well, right. That's actually the great line. And then, and I suppose that that would be a good way to start out the piece with would be that thought and then go into why do they behave so badly in debate? Well, the debates are badly structured. Right. Right. Well, and there, there's there's all kinds of other reasons we can we can hit their character, but we can't really apparently control no, we're not the, going to. the character of the people who are in the debates. We can control the structure. We can mention that better than the debate they had would be to just leave them, and then and we'd find out maybe more of what they're made of in terms of how they respond to a totally spontaneous situation. Of course, they know ahead of time, I guess, so it's not really spontaneous. But the other aspect of it, I mean, in terms of structuring time-wise, because I'm not sure the the 30-30, the, the problem in part is it's almost like you might have a lot of awkward pauses during the first half hour as people are like, going, no, you talk, you talk. And it will go very fast, too, because, it, because the model here would be fast chess. Have you ever seen fast chess played? Yes. Okay, think of the debate based on that model. Uh, and <laughs> it would be kind of just spit out what you have to say. No, no spinning, and and certainly no. Uh, uh, you know, sometimes in debate, like in I was in high school debate. I did, I think, one college debate uh, tournament. Um, it's you know, and that's not Oxford debate. It's more something else. But it it's not very serious in the sense of. Like people run spreads where they just raise enough arguments of like dubious quality that if you don't respond to it, then in their response is they're spitting and blah, 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 and he didn't answer B seventeen blah, 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 blah. and it's like this isn't the real you know in a debate you know the person who goes I really feel the way you do is going to beat the guy who's going but he didn't answer B seventeen or B eighteen or B nineteen bring that over to my side and then go on blah 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 blah, blah. I mean that's how they're their debate was. Yeah, see, I, I just haven't really been very impressed with debates uh, that I've seen. Another idea I've had for debates for years, I call it the ordinal speaker manner of debate. And you have a first speaker, a second speaker, and, if, and any other speakers, and a last speaker. 
for any bout, it goes in that direction. The first speaker speaks, the second speaker speaks, and the last speaker speaks. And then the next question goes, and you change the, who's the first and last speaker, and first, second, and last speaker. And so what you get is is that they can form questions of each other, and uh, and the last speaker is the sergeant at arms. He's the one who concludes it. He stops it. Would be an interesting form of debate. It would also be interesting to apply this reciprocal Socratic method. Participants could go Socratic style and only Socratic style against their opponents. Is that you could only ask questions of which the answer is yes, no, or some simple little word, and then lead an argument like Socrates did. Then the other side gets to do it to you. You get to, it's not just one side. It's right, not right. There can be ways that are radically inequality. Then by switching sides becomes equality. You'd need like a really loud buzzer though. That that if as soon as they said yes, but you know me. Well, you know, both of them can be suspended over water tanks at the fair. <laughs> and if they disobey the rule, they get immersed. <laughs> right. They should, like the, like the ball, they throw the ball and right. dunk the guy. That should be the debating method. On Wednesday, we talked about the piece you were doing for Thursday. Right. And that just ran for the audience. But... I didn't mention the title because we didn't have a title. And right now, I don't even know what the title was. Train or Dumpster? Because we referred to it as uh, either a train wreck or a dumpster fire. So, again, this is America. There's always freedom of choice. So you can choose either the train wreck or the dumpster fire. Uh, I saw somebody on CNN refer to it just today, not when we were titling it. I saw someone on CNN call it a hot mess within a dumpster fire within a train wreck or something like that. It was so they, they were, it's rather like the great Churchillian line riddle wrapped up with a mystery inside an enigma. Uh, enigma yes. Yeah. But what was that for? Was that for Soviet Union? I think that was, I think it was, it was Churchill. Yeah. I think he was talking about the Soviet Union it was after world war two and, and sometime around his uh, iron curtain speech, which he gave at Westminster college in Fulton, Missouri which is where I spent my freshman year of college. Well, that's something I didn't know. I got a, I got a uh, Churchill scholarship. I didn't get the biggest one, but I got a few nickels for uh, to save my parents some money. Well, that's kind of interesting. So you are less of a mystery inside an enigma. Inside. <laughs> <laughs> this will bring us back to the sad reality we live in. How about doing Mondays, which is not fired for teaching and uh, and the reason the headline or uh, on this is not fired for teaching is because of not just this story of a professor who didn't get fired but of course the headline in this piece about it about the professor you know leads off with he didn't he didn't get fired which is kind of a weird thing i mean why would he would he get fired but it's, uh, it's a controversy where they're trying to kind of minimize that there were bad things that came out of it. But, of course, this professor at University of Southern California, uh, he is a linguist. He speaks Mandarin. And he was explaining to his class that there are words that people throw in like, uh, uh, oh, uh, 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 oh, oh, oh. Uh, <laughs> I, I see what you're doing there. <laughs> <laughs> I'll 
was hoping because otherwise I was going to sound really dumb. <laughs> but anyway, so they're just words that we throw in. And he pointed out that the words are different in different languages. Crazy. And, and it is a little crazy because you think of you think of a word like uh or uh or whatever. Um is one of your favorites, I think, isn't it? Yes. Um, I'm a I'm a big umer. Uh but you think of that, and you think, well, that would be, you know, this it's not a word, but it is connected to the language. And of course, this professor pointed out, and I don't, I, my, my Mandarin is really, really rusty. Uh, and so I don't know how you say it, but you look at the word, and uh, this is, uh, you can you can go look at the word yourself at thisiscommonsense.org. And the, the script is not fired for teaching, but the, it's something like ni, gi, uh, and and so, however he said it, and I won't attempt it here. I, I don't need controversy. It's not ex- exactly uh, a, a mystery. It's not a mystery. It, the first syllable sounds nay to me, nay. Yeah. And the second one sounds like gay. Yeah. So if exactly. you put them together, I guess you can figure out what that's what the controversy is. Right. Right. And so he had a number of students who did not come to him but who did complain to the administration and, uh, and just said that they were, you know, it made them fearful and uncomfortable and all the usual stuff. And, you know, there are times when people are rude, racist, obnoxious, mean, all kinds of things, and they shouldn't be. And professors shouldn't be. Just because you're in a position of authority doesn't mean you should harass and, and ridicule and and belittle or just threaten in some subtle way people in your class. But when you know that your professor is explaining something uh, that makes perfect sense once you know all the parameters of what he's saying and has not the slightest bit of racism or meanness or any negative thing about it, how do you keep going? I mean, it, it, it just seems like, you know, um, if the professors are racist, then let's let's have it out. But when you find out that it's really you're feeling uncomfortable about something that has nothing to do with that, it seems like the knowledge ought to wipe away the controversy. And yet it doesn't. It's as if that the reality of whether this professor was racist or in any had any negative attribute to him is unimportant. We made a chart. We didn't feel good about what he said, maybe because we're totally ignorant about it, which in this case, and I don't mean ignorant in a, in a nasty, oh, they're ignorant people, but you're ignorant of anything you don't know. And to be honest with you, I didn't know that this is what they say in Mandarin, you know, when they, when they're saying um, um, um. Uh, and, and so I'm ignorant, too. But it it's as if ignorance is OK. It's the intention of, of hitting back at someone who made you feel bad, even though you felt bad, not because of anything that person did, but because of your own lack of knowledge. And. You know, that's if you want to live in that society, you know, bully for you, but please don't make it the same society I'm living in. And and uh, here, not only did the administration apologize, uh, even Professor Patton, who made the comments, apologized. 
which is regrettable um, because he had nothing to apologize for. But uh, we, we live not only in a pretend society, but in a pretend society that we're pretending is worse than the actual society we live in. And I don't get that. I think it's probably worse than that. I, I, I think that the real problem here is that they've been given power. That what these youngsters, in this case, the students or whoever complained, they have a word, they have a way of getting at you. And we've given it to them because we've made one word so taboo that no non-black person can speak it without getting in trouble. And that gives the people who want to complain and want to abuse power power to do awful things. In this case, the awful thing is to complain about some guy who was innocently telling the truth. I mean, this is just simply, this is, in a sense, this was innocuous. Yes. And, I mean, it's just, it, it's, it, it may be the dumbest story of the week, and we did have the week with the debate in it, so. <laughs> right. Well, you know, it's interesting, to, I, I kind of chuckled when you started, because you're always saying, oh, no, Paul, it's a lot worse than that. I'm always the sunny, the glass is half full, tyranny isn't complete yet, and you're, you're the downer, Tim. I just want you to know that. But it here, it's not just, you know, it'd be one thing if there was just this bugaboo about the N-word. Um, and you could kind of understand that, boy, that's a hurtful slur and whatever, although it's, you know, used all the time, depending on what race the person is who's using it. But whatever. That's I, I think I think if it were just about that, it'd be a different story. But this has begun to permeate everything. That it's and it's not just the anti racism racism, it's not just the, you know, cultural revolution esque type way that the left, you know, is emulating the just viciousness that, that you know spread through China. Uh, in Mao's later years, where they went after all kinds of people to browbeat and and harass and humiliate and torture and kill and stuff like that, uh, we haven't gotten to the torture and kill part yet, thank goodness. But it's but it's it's more than that in the sense that we have decided we being the great we, but some folks have decided it doesn't matter what the facts are, what the intention is in other words the person who was trying to say something nice to somebody who actually uses words that turn out to be a nice thing to say but who the other person because they for whatever reason heard them wrong thinks is a terrible thing and gets angry and we have a big blow up and then at the end of it we figure out oh it's like a sitcom oh we're so silly we thought that you were saying stuff that was negative, but it turns out it was all positive. Now, in the sitcom, everyone would laugh, they'd chuckle, you'd see the credits roll, but not, not in modern America. No, in modern America, we double down and say just because what you said was innocuous, innocuous just because what you said uh you know, is fine and I misheard it, but still because I misheard it and I have some racial grievance or some inequality of income grievance or some grievance that some Marxist somewhere said was great, we're going to just keep on going. It doesn't matter that what you said was nice. It doesn't matter that you had no evil intentions. And 
you know, at that point, we're in absurdity land. Welcome. Well, we are in absurdity <laughs> land. That's that's we're, certainly we're true. The welcome wagon of the <laughs> yeah. absurdity yeah. land. I guess that, I guess that is the welcome wagon. Um, Tuesday's piece was uh, a different kind of absurdity, I guess. Well, it's not really absurdity. This is this is weird. Um, we have two episodes of weird ballot manipulation going on. Actually, we're hearing a, a new one almost every day, which is sort of making Trump's fears about the election seem less than crazy, which they sometimes do seem crazy. I mean, we all know that Trump's claims about election fiddling around are, you know, not always not always on board reality. Right. But the, this seems well, and, and other claims, but but it seems like <laughs> in all of these all of these claims. That again, instead of weighing the claim, what's the chance? You know, I mean, there, it strikes me this is another place where the media is quick to debunk. Well, there's really not that much voter fraud. Well, how much is not that much? Um, and of course, some of what's going on now and that people are reading in their papers or seeing on Facebook or wherever they're seeing these stories, they're not really about fraud. They're about incompetence at such a level that, you know, 20 percent of the ballots in, in one New Jersey election that don't get counted because there was some mistake in the in the mail in ballots or the post office didn't get it there in time. And I mean, there's there's all kinds of problems. Um, and and so, you know, it, 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 there's every reason to be concerned about these things. And there's also every reason, like everything else, to find out what the facts are and not to necessarily just buy into whatever the hype is. And we were quick to go with this story. And in some ways, I was a little concerned that maybe, you know, it, it's, a, it's a, a video. You don't know all the things around it. And in fact, we had, uh, I think it was uh, Donna uh, who, who posted at the website, hey, you should, be, you should have been more critical of these stories about Project Veritas. And of course, our, our buddy Tom Knapp was there saying, I don't believe anything Project Veritas says. They've edited uh, videos and so on. And, uh, and this is, of course, their, their film of someone in Minnesota uh, Minneapolis in uh, Omar's district, uh, Ilhan Omar, the Democrat uh, Congresswoman, one of the one of the uh, of the squad members, and it's it's interesting because uh, again, you have to be very careful. Where are all the facts? And we didn't say, boy, we we know all of this is true, and she's guilty as sin, you know. Uh, but we did. I did want to bring it up because so often these things are not getting any play in the mainstream media. And since this video, uh, you know, Donna had said even Fox is skeptical of this. And she posted a story from Fox where they were skeptical in that story. She, she told us straight. But since then, there the uh, Minneapolis police is are now investigating. The FBI is now investigating. A few more facts have come out. One of the things that was interesting is that they had all these, you can only pick up three uh, ballots from different people. Uh, one of the concerns when you're mailing out ballots and people are filling them out and then they send it back in, 
is that maybe someone helps them fill them out or somebody fills it out for them and then grabs it and takes it to the post office or to a drop box or what have you. And there's been problems in, in situations like this. Doesn't mean everybody who's harvesting these ballots is a, is a criminal and doing fraudulent things, but there've been some real problems. And so in, uh, Minnesota, there's a law that says you cannot take more than three of these ballots. In other words, you just can't go to everybody in your neighborhood. If you need your mom and dad's and your Aunt Betty's uh, to, you know, to take for them, then you can. But that's where it stops. That was suspended because of the COVID you know, pandemic and so on. And so people were for a period of time allowed to do more. So my first question is, maybe this film was during that period of time. Well, it turns out it was not. It was prior to that period of time. And so if the person who does appear to work for Oman, uh, as well as other people, uh, uh, if, if that person, Omar, uh, if that person um, was truthful about having all these ballots, he was committing a crime. And, uh, and so it's, you know, it, it is a serious situation. It's funny. Uh, not last night, I guess it was the night before on the local news here. I'm in Virginia, uh, get Washington DC news. And there was a, a case in Maryland where someone was going door to door, picking up uh, ballots. And of course, that's not how it works in Maryland. You can't legally go door to door and pick up ballots and turn them in. And so that's a, a real problem. And again, I say that not to encourage people to run around crazy saying, oh, no, the election's ruined. And the, the truth is, I was on a, a panel and maybe we should uh, maybe we should put a link to that. I've got one, Tim. We'll put a link maybe in the uh, uh, whatever you call it, uh, in the explanation comments uh, on this video. But I was part of a uh, global forum on modern direct democracy that was was held online. So, you know, the people doing it were uh, in, in Switzerland and in Germany for the most part. But it was wherever you were virtually. But I was on a panel about the American election. And I say all that really just to say one of the things I try to get across is I'm not, you know, all hope is lost. I'm not, my, my hands are not, my head is not in my hands. I'm not grounding in my beer or whatever, whatever uh, metaphor is, is uh, usable here, which clearly I can't come up with. Um, but, it, you know, I feel like, yes, we are going to have the campaigns hire a zillion lawyers and fight over every vote from the day, from election night for for weeks, maybe months, uh, and it's going to be ugly, and I know all of that. But my experience with politicians is terrible. But my experience with secretaries of state and with county clerks and with the people who are at the polling places and running the elections has been nothing but positive. And I expect, it to be, I expect these people to be working harder, have less of them there, but I expect them to, to go the extra mile and do things like they always do on the up and up uh, for, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's somebody somewhere who's not on the up and up, but my experience has just been wonderful with these people. And so I think people are ready to vote. 
I think we're smart enough to know how to mark our ballot. I think that the election's going to be held and run in a in a professional way, and that you know. So I'm not worried in that sense. I'm I am worried about the aftermath and all the legal wrangling um, because that's not in the hands of the American people for the most part. It's in the hands of, and not that they aren't Americans, but it's in the hands of judges and lawyers and the political parties who have appointed a lot of those judges. And, um, and it's not so much in the hands of average, everyday, decent, uh, common sense Americans. So that's, that's how I kind of worry about things. And, um, and I do think that, you know, with mail-in ballots, this, this is something that we've mentioned here. I'll mention it again before we move on. Um, there has almost been an effort by the media not to explain this to people, but Trump's concern, as far as I understand it, uh, is one I agree with. His concern is all mail ballots, where you literally just mail out ballots to every registered voter, whether they've requested one or not. That is, I think, a recipe for trouble. And of course, some of these states are now talking about, I believe Oregon's already gone to it, automatic registration. So you're registering everybody in the state, whether they have asked to be registered or not, which just seems to me to be rude, for one. You just, even if you're trying to do something nice for someone, you don't have that right. You don't have a right to sign them up for some government program that they might not want to be a part of. If you did it for me, I'd say thanks for saving me the trouble. But I also would kind of wonder, why are you got your nose in my business? So anyway, that is bad. And, and of course, then if you have that, and even if you don't, mailing a bunch of ballots out to people who didn't ask for them and don't intend to send them back is a problem because we do have people who are willing to skirt the rules and do bad things. And the, the proper way to do that, I think, if a state wants to send out, as mine did, uh, Virginia, sent out a thing to voters saying, would you like to request an absentee ballot? So you wouldn't have to go to the polls. And then I can request an absentee ballot and get it. That's I don't have a problem with. And as uh, as I've heard Mr. Trump, he doesn't have a problem with. And all of that makes sense. And we could argue over that reasonably. But it seems like instead we have had the media just play up. Um, it all is the same. It's all confusing. It must be that he doesn't want people to vote. Um, and it's just, you know, I hear nothing but terrible things about Mr. Trump with that You shouldn't have to make stuff up. You shouldn't have to just confuse everything to try to hit him. You should have plenty of ammo. And, and the reason it, it, that bugs me so much is that it's, you know, people want reform. They want people to be able to vote who want to vote. And, you know, but a lot of times they're not experienced. And we, we've had this discussion about early voting. And if it's too long a period, how expensive it makes campaigns and how that hurts challengers and helps incumbents. And I think a lot of times the media presents it as this will make it easier for people to vote. Well, at a certain point, you have to be careful that while you're making it easier for people to vote, you're not so tilting the playing field that you don't have real competition. And and more information, voters ultimately should make the decision, but more information is better than less. My interest in the subject is 
twofold or threefold or fourfold. I wonder how many folds I can put in there. Uh, but the first is that I live in a state where we do have all male balloting. And uh, our Secretary of State has said that uh, it takes a while to get this to work. And it wasn't an immediate thing for Washington State. And she advised others that it they should be very concerned about trying to ramp something up in one year for one election. Uh, she just doesn't think it's going to work very well. Um, now, I don't like mail-in balloting, period. So all I want is I don't want normal mail-in balloting. I want people to go to the polls because I don't want people who have almost no interest in in uh, in voting to vote. Uh, if you're a marginal voter so much that you can't bo- be bothered to uh to go further than your mailbox, I'm somewhat concerned about that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not as democratic as you are, for one thing. That's obviously the case. Uh, the other is that my bigger concern for me, though, is is that uh, many states have balloting machines that are compromised, and they've been known to be compromised for some time. And people almost never talk about it. Uh, and then when you realize that Many of the balloting machines and balloting systems that are electronic and you know online in some sense, and have been shown to be easily compromised. Many of these are run by deep state uh, contractors that have huge contracts contracts with the Pentagon, and there's just so much potential abuse there that we will never have any idea how bad it could be. Let me take those in in order because. I, I do think that there is a there, there are two principles. One principle is you want to make it easy to vote for those who want to vote. You don't want you don't want to say, hey, come here and register. But you have to come three weekends in a row or you've got to, you know, the old poll tax uh, thing or the or the the poll test, which, would you know, no, Albert Einstein couldn't have passed the poll test. That they were giving potential black voters, who of course potential was all at, at one point. So um, you you want to make it easy, as you point out, for anybody who wants to vote. You don't want to, you know, browbeat people who say I don't care and I don't know anything about who's running. And did I mention I don't care? I don't want them to vote, and I agree wholeheartedly with you. And I don't think anybody who really cares about democracy and participation is going to think that, oh, what a great election because, you know, 10% of the voters we had to browbeat and push and cajole to get the vote. And they didn't really care, but we got to know what they thought, except not really because they didn't care. Um, So it is a problem when people start to push that everybody needs to vote whether they want to or not, that's too far. And um, and on a lot of things, you know, we've, we've heard, uh, you know, on, on uh, voter ID and so on. And at the polls in Virginia, we've always shown ID. I understand now we will not have to. Um, but, you know, on some of those things, I think people go to kind of crazy links to say, oh, that's so destructive. And yet, you know, to, to basically navigate life, people are having to have IDs and stuff. And so, you know, again, and this will segue to your second point, um, 
which is that we don't know what's going on with so much of this. And so much of it is ha happening in the dark. The key thing is that the public has to be involved in decisions about elections. And we have to debate them and discuss them and listen about the different ramifications, because this is an area that I think we all think we know all about. But today, someone asked some questions about what happens if there's a tie and it goes uh, goes into the House of Representatives. And then someone else, oh, no, the states decide. Well, no, they don't. It's the House of Representatives. But of course, it's not a vote by each member. Each state gets one vote. But I found myself going back to Article 2 of the Constitution. And you know what? I didn't realize, but I had to go to the 12th Amendment and the 20th Amendment to figure out exactly what the rules are. And even then, there's a little level of, of vagueness. These we, we think we know about this, but we don't know as much as we should. And here's the, the $64,000 answer. If we leave it to a Republican-controlled legislature or a Democratic-controlled legislature or a Republican-Democratic legislature singing kumbaya and holding hands with each other, any way you slice it. If politicians make all these decisions about how our elections are run, they're not going to be well run. And, and so the public has to be engaged. And we really need to spend, after this election, and hopefully someday, you know, the, the, you know our whole country ends its, its uh, partial lockdown, um, we need to be engaged in figuring out these issues, not just for the next pandemic, but for the next election that's not in a pandemic, because what we found is not only that we're not prepared for emergencies and once every century problems, we're not prepared to hold democratic elections. We don't do it nearly as well as we should. Um, if, if this was a war and peace issue, uh, we'd, we'd be looking at some heads rolling and we're going to do something different. And the truth is, it is a war and peace issue. And it's a freedom or slavery issue. It's, you know, if, if you believe in our system uh, and you think everything's going to run just fine, whether we have any democratic check on power or not, well, you don't believe in our system because our system is all about that democratic check on power. And if we, the you know, the more we don't control that process, the less we have any influence on it. Um, this week, uh, Breitbart, reported that a laptop and memory sticks uh, that are used to program the Philadelphia voting machines were stolen. So somebody out there has the means to control the Philadelphia voting system. I don't know how, you know, we don't know what that really means, but that's a little bit of an alarming thought. It, 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 my first thought, Tim, as you were saying that is, well, no change there. <laughs> yeah, I know. Nothing to worry about there. How could it get any worse? But you know, I, I, I jest a little bit. No, it, it is. It's, it's a serious problem. And again, it's uh, we've got to be engaged. Anything that's on autopilot is we are in deep, deep trouble when you're talking about running government on autopilot, which sort of segues to Wednesday's script, The Culture of Genocide. And uh, I've been wanting to write this for a week or so. I, I read an article where uh, Ambassador Stapleton Roy, who was 
been in, lived in China much of his life, was the U.S. ambassador to the People's Republic of China uh, under Bush, uh, W, uh, George W., and uh, partly under Obama. And he gave a speech at Pomona University in California, their model United Nations, and was talking about China. And he made a number of points, um, none of which to me uh, made any sense uh, and, and sort of made me want to bring his neck, to be just quite honest with you. Um, first of all, he talked about the protesters in Hong Kong uh, provoking the mainland into responding by taking away all the freedoms and completely reneging on the agreement that they made with Britain to not turn Hong Kong into a totalitarian nightmare until at least 2047. They, they finally decided they couldn't wait. Uh, and and, um, and I'll, I'll mention, well, I'll, I'll mention uh, right now why. There's an article that was in uh, the New York Times, and this happened after I wrote this script, but it's an article uh, by a, a woman who's a legislator in Hong Kong. Um, I'm looking for a name here real quick, but uh, her last name is Ip, I-P. Uh, where is it? Regina Ip. And uh, she's a legislator, also a member of the Executive Council in Hong Kong. She's a pro-Beijing, she's a Beijing mouthpiece uh, on, the, on the Hong Kong, in the Hong Kong government. She writes this op-ed in the New York Times, and it's basically all, you know, explaining away why we really had to, you know, to come down like totalitarians on any sort of dissent and how, you know, we really can't judge Hong Kong against other places in the West where there's a different form of government. We have to judge Hong Kong against the rest of China. And if it's a sliver more free than the completely unfree rest of China, well, then let's all applaud. Uh, literally, if you, if you go to, uh, uh, the New York Times, and you look at Hong Kong is China, like it or not, that's the op-ed that I'm talking about. But here's the last paragraph. Uh, I'll just read a, a bit of it and the final sentence, which I think is, well, um, I, I thought it was obnoxious that the New York Times, which has, of course, taken all kinds of advertising revenue uh, money from the from the Chinese, Chinese government there, uh, through the years, maybe they felt obliged to print it, but maybe it's helpful that they print it. I'm not opposed to people printing uh, ideas they don't agree with, because this certainly helped us see what a danger China is. But here's the, the last paragraph in this piece. Foreign governments should not benchmark what happens in Hong Kong against standards that prevail in Western countries. Those are governed by a political system entirely different from China's. Bank goodness. And then a little more, and then she says, Beijing's national security law is saving one country, two systems, get this, by ensuring that Hong Kong does not become a danger to China. Now sit back and just let that seep in for a second. Hong Kong is seven and a half, eight million people, little island, several islands, 
China's this huge country with 1.4 billion people. Hong Kong's got no army. They've got no nukes. China's got a big army and navy and nukes and all kinds of things. How is Hong Kong a threat to China? Simple. Everybody throughout the world wants freedom. And Hong Kong demonstrates how nice it is. And they cannot allow that example to be there for the next 27 years because it might undo all the totalitarian devices they have put up to keep the 1.4 billion Chinese people in bondage to this so-called communist, Chinazi totalitarian state. And, uh, and there it is, right in the New York Times, which gave them the forum, but there it is. Hong Kong is a danger to China. And frankly, the reason they don't like you or me or other academics in Australia or the United States or anywhere else saying anything bad about China is because the only way that tyranny, as evil as what the CCP is doing, can survive is by silence. And they want to turn the whole world silent. So it's, anyway, he, he says, uh, you know, kind of the Hong Kong people asked for it, so to speak. They went too far. They should have shown more self-restraint. Uh, and, and basically, not only did they go too far, he points out that they went too far in Tiananmen Square in 1989. Now, if you think about it, there was a lot made about property destruction and different things, which we've been very critical of in the United States, in, the, in riots, uh, in Hong Kong. Anyone who knows much about what's happened there knows that there's been tremendous police brutality that the authorities have refused to look into. Whereas, of course, in the United States, there are two ongoing investigations right now in the federal government with inspector generals who are independent investigating different police tactics being used. So that's a big, big, big difference. Um, the other thing is so much was made, and I'm watching this every day, so much during these protests in Hong Kong was made of different things the, the rioters did, the protesters did. Um, and yet, when there was an election in December of last year, after all these months of protests and all the stories I began seeing, and, uh, you know, I don't read Mandarin, so I'm reading the Western press, all of this about how people are turning against the protesters because, oh, they spray painted this or, I, you know, the one story of them lighting some uh, guy on fire. Funny, we never heard anything more about that. Never heard how, how it turned out. Uh, a lot of these stories have been alleged by protesters to be complete BS. And I believe them because you never hear you never hear what happens later. And you would think if it's a big propaganda story for the Chinazis that they would say something. Um, anyway, at, in those elections, you had brand new pro-democracy candidates running against powerful incumbents with all kinds of money and name ID behind them. 80 
seven percent of the seats were won by pro-democracy candidates. Eighty-seven percent. So if you want to, you want to say there's a connection in the, with that in the U.S. or something. Well, if if whoever's in favor of demonstrations gets eighty-seven percent of the vote, that'll be similar to the way they're looking at it in Hong Kong. So when when someone you know poo-poos what these people are doing, risking their lives with really very little choice because the the clock is running and they're living next to a totalitarian nightmare that's now they're living in a totalitarian nightmare. But then to go after Tiananmen Square, no violence there. No, nothing but thoughtful people asking for change, embarrassing the heck out of the Chinese leaders, but embarrassment is is something they deserve and they deserve a whole lot worse. And then Roy comes down and basically says what's happening in Xinjiang, the the uh, uh, where the Uyghurs are, with a million Uyghurs in concentration camps, is not genocide. And he says, "Let's be careful with our language." He tells the students who are hearing him, "We cannot call it genocide." And then. He comes back and says, more accurately, there is what can be called cultural genocide. And as I pointed out in the piece, that's merely the extermination of a people's religion, customs, ethnicity, language, freedom. They're not killing everybody. I mean, what more could we ask for? Hey, they didn't kill us all. That, and of course, anyone who knows anything about genocide, who bothers, as we put a link in this uh, particular piece, the culture of genocide at thisiscommonsense.org, there's a link to the UN's definition of, of genocide. And any reasonable definition of genocide, they all include destroying people's religion. Um, they have been sterilizing Uyghur women, destroying the next generation. That's genocide. Um, browbeating and, in essence, torturing people to renounce their religion, to denounce, renounce their customs. That's not pretty. That's not, we don't need high-priced, well-educated people explaining how that's really not so bad. My goodness. And, of course, you, you can't say it's not genocide without in the next second, next sentence, in the next sentence, uh, in the next second, if you speak quickly, uh, saying that it is genocide, it's cultural genocide, it is genocide. And what's interesting is, so often you look at a map of China and you, you hear people talk about how China has not been aggressive, you know, against its neighbors. And I'm thinking, by whose account? Because I noticed in looking for some things about cultural genocide, but that's what the Dalai Lama calls what China has done in Tibet. Tibet's not China. It is now. And of course, they're still working on brainwashing people in Tibet because they're still concerned. As a, uh, There's a link in the story. You can go there. They're concerned about splitism in Tibet because too many people in Tibet 
don't feel connected enough to China. Well, of course not, because they're not China. They're in Tibet. They're Tibetan. Um, this is what we're looking at. And, you know, as I've said so many times, I don't have all the answers uh, as to, you know, if, if this was easy, you know, I guess it would have been done long ago. I know this. China is the most dangerous, most totalitarian government on the planet. It is gaining power. The, the Chinazis are more powerful now than they were five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 or 20. They're getting stronger, not weaker. Uh, I don't think anybody in our government has paid any attention. I think we've done things to help them that have been counterproductive. In fact, you know, we talked about the postal regulations. That was one common sense uh, commentary that we did. We've done dozens of others. Um, the U.S. has not paid good attention to simply stopping China from doing things it shouldn't be able to do, uh, like stealing intellectual property and so on. I'm glad that uh, Trump has stood up in a whole bunch of ways. But whether you like Trump, hate Trump, regardless of, of this policy or that policy or whether we agree on the solution, here's the one thing we know. We are not gonna make China better. We're not gonna make the situation for us or Hong Kongers or Taiwanese folks or anyone else in the world or the 1.4 billion in China any better by lying to ourselves about what's happening. We need to recognize this is a totalitarian regime and it is a threat to their own people and to the rest of the world. And let's not hype it one iota more than it deserves, but by golly, let's not hide what's going on and let's not play some mealy mouth word games about genocide. If, you know, people said never again after the Holocaust, not never again because you figured out new ways to rationalize or new terms to use. Never again because whole peoples, my goodness, we need to protect the individual. But if they can just wipe out whole peoples, we've got a real problem. And I, I posted on Facebook, it's not part of this commentary, but I posted on Facebook this morning because I, I thought about this. One of the reasons that Hitler did not spread more death and destruction is because Germany was 70 million people. I think there were about 80 million today, but there were 70 million people when, uh, when Adolf Hitler was in charge. That made it about the size of England and less than the United States. And, you know, it's just how much of the world can you take over with 70 million people? What if Hitler would have controlled the country of 1.4 billion people. And it's just a scary, scary thought. Um, Xi Jinping controls a country of 1.4 billion. He's got nukes. He's got a strong military. He has a surveillance state no one else anywhere in the world has. And he is a danger with Concentration camps, they're not 
killing people in ovens or in mass ways yet. I mean, if that's comforting for, for some people, I mean, it is, it's better, could be worse. We have to recognize it. And, um, and I, I plan to continue to point out when folks who have been integral parts of our policy with China are completely oblivious to the threat that China poses to, to us and to the rest of the world. Well, after uh, talking about the heady subject of China totalitarianism, moving to California as a subject, which you did on Friday, seems a little bit of a lowering of a of the threat level. It's, it's totalitarianism light. Very light, except that, Governor, <laughs> according to what I see here written right here on thisiscommonsense.org, you say that Governor Gavin Newsom signed an order banning production of emission-emitting cars and light trucks by 2035 in hopes of eliminating sales of internal combustion engines. That, to yeah. me, doesn't sound at all like what somebody in a republic would do or in a free society would do. That sounds nothing like freedom. No, and it, it, because it's not anything like freedom. And California has a huge energy problem now, and it's been created by the government making terrible deals on securing energy. And it's also because they've decided that they want to go green in a way that just doesn't work too well. And, you know, who knows what they'll be able to do or not do, but there's a there's an impact. If you, you know, get rid of, uh, uh, you know, any combustion engines, well, you're going to have a lot of people in California who aren't wealthy enough to afford an uh, electric uh, car. And of course, at some point, electric cars create greenhouse gases as well. Um, you know, they're not carbon neutral. And um, this is something that you know, I think we all have an opinion as to what the best energy might be or, or not be and, and, and so on. But it's really not for us to decide for everyone. And it, it seems to me that uh, we're going to see a lot of folks leaving California if they go to this level of, of uh, control. And I don't see any reason to believe they won't. I mean, from little things like plastic bags being outlawed and then and then rushed back into use uh, or the wildfires. Uh, I thought one of the interesting things uh, I heard in it, I don't know if it was, uh, maybe it was during the debate, I guess it was, where Trump hit him on, you know, the truth is there's way to, ways to manage forests where you don't have all these fires. And, you know, and I, I, I'm, I'm not a... Uh, uh, a forest ranger. I'm not Mr. Science. I'm not, uh, what's his name? The, the science guy. I'm not Bill Nye. But, um, and, and so maybe there's some arguments to say, no, it's better to have all these forest fires for whatever reason that I can't fathom. But let's have that debate because what we have instead is all these forest fires and every story in the paper saying it's obvious that this is all caused by, you know, climate change. And then I read an article that mentions that, no, the fires were worse 
you know, 100 years ago. And if it's climate change caused by industrialization and so on, then the fires would be worse today than 100 years ago. And it seems like it's more due to our own policies on those forests than it is due to being able to tie it to any sort of climate change. So again, we've got politics uh, that just seeps into every decision. And we've got government making more and more decisions. They can shut down our entire economy. They can tell us you know, what fuels we're going to use or not use. They can get rid of the combustion engine. I mean, think about how important the combustion engine is. And we're told in one breath that we're just going to get rid of it, you know, signed with a, the signature of a pen. And, and yet we're also told this is going to be a wonderful thing because we're going to have all kinds of new green jobs. Now, when you have to make a change, if you have to, and I don't think we do here, but uh, nor can we really effectively make a change from fossil fuels and combustion engines to some brand new energy. Um, but when you do that, there are huge costs involved. And if someone were to come to you and say, hey, you need to make this change. Let me tell you why. And let me explain what it's going to cost. You might weigh it and say, well, I'm, I, I agree with your analysis of the problem. And so I'm going to pay those costs. But when you've got some politician, meaning their lips move and they lie, telling you there's no cost. In fact, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened. Hey, Mr. Jones, we're going to have to uh, just destroy your whole fleet of vehicles in your business, and you're going to have to buy all new ones. But this is great, isn't it? <laughs> it's not really costing anything. Because you're buying those new ones will spur the economy. And then everyone will buy your product. And then you'll buy everyone else's product. And they will all be completely rich. These are, if, if you agreed with their analysis of the science, you would say, okay, we have to pay these onerous costs. And yet, they don't ever mention that there's any cost. It's all going to be gravy. And um, anyway, it's California is is such a beautiful place. And um, and I think sometimes people like to you know make fun of the fruits and nuts in California. They're wonderful people, too. I don't know why they've elected these people who are ruining their state, but they are ruining it. And um, it's it's the sort of thing where you hate to see it. And yet you almost want. I think it was H.L. Mencken who said, you know, they they deserve to get what they want good and hard. Uh, you want to see the steps of what they're doing taken and analyze it so that people can see this sort of draconian government decides everything, picks all the industrial winners and losers. I mean, this is right out of like the Soviet Union in a five year plan, except they weren't so crazy in the Soviet Union as to think they could just completely obliterate everything. Well, actually, they were at different times. <laughs> I take that back. Yeah, I got to get take it back. I think their agriculture policies were uh, were not the best. 
the piece was how quickly can California be destroyed. It ran today, Friday, as we record. And I think I should mention a warning. And people should actually go and read it because it's sarcasm from beginning to end. It's not your normal fare. Usually you're earnest uh, in some way. Even if you're joking around, you're earnest. And this is not earnest. So they should actually just go and read it because we can't duplicate the effect here. They should indeed. It's at thisiscommonsense.org. And I think we may be wrapped. Uh, We should probably mention one other thing, which is in this insane year, after we did all of these commentaries of this week, we now have a president who has COVID, uh, at least is tested positive and is uh, is now at Walter Reed. He's working out of the presidential offices at Walter Reed Hospital. Uh, but that's, boy, it, uh, we've had so many twists and turns. I have a friend who I think I've mentioned before who in January we were on the phone. He said, yeah, but. Probably something crazy will happen this year. We'll change everything that we expect. And, uh, and of course, that's happened <laughs> several times. The COVID thing, I, it, well, this is a this is a huge kettle of fish, and I guess I, I shouldn't uh, slop into it right now. <laughs> but uh, I think this is planned by this is this is this is a maneuver by Trump. I don't really believe it. It's also, as far as I can tell, he just has the antibodies for the disease right he has no real symptoms they didn't mention any symptoms in any of the reports i read they mentioned mild symptoms this did they oh did they yes so and melania did not she stayed at the white house so of course she's younger and not quite as much of a of a concern maybe um but anyway we'll see we'll see what what happens maybe it was her attempt to get him out of the house yeah. Well, you know, it's been interesting that uh, I spent a few minutes uh, downstairs flipping the channels from MSNBC to CNN to Fox. And um, boy, they, they haven't taken this as a good reason to just kind of be friendly. And, you know, I mean, it's it's all the reporting is after ignoring the virus and saying it was no big deal. Now the president has it, you know, with kind of a gleeful we're all happy now. Uh, so it's, this may get crazier and crazier as it, as it goes on. But Yeah, well, there's a lot of precedent for the crazy this time. We can't use the word unprecedented anymore. No. This is the year where unprecedented dies. <laughs> well, and, and we were so ready for it to die because it had been used so many times just horrendously. And now uh, I think you're right. I think we've lost the world, the word forever. Okay. And now we lost the episode. We're done. Oh, all right. Sounds good. Talk to you later. Bye. Well, that was another episode of This Week in Common Sense starring Paul Jacob. We recorded this in two sessions, one on Wednesday, the last day of September, and one on Friday, the 2nd of October, 2020. If you want to uh, keep track of what Paul's doing, you probably should go to thisiscommonsense.org. That's where he's been writing commentary five days a week since 1999. He's, of course, also on Facebook, especially at Common Sense with Paul Jacob. And that's what thisiscommonsense.org is titled, Common Sense with Paul Jacob. And you can find this on SoundCloud. You can find it with various podcatchers and on YouTube and other places. I thank you for stopping by, and uh, we'll be talking at you next week.